Hello, everyone. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. For Marcus Lopez, Fabiana Hirsch, I'm your host for the hour, Larry Smith. On today's program, the city of Santa Barbara in the heart of the Chumash Nation moves a step closer towards renaming Indios Morta or Dead Indian Street, and the first report of its kind on missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, and two-spirited people covering Northern California. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon shines bright, the lone In the first segment of our program today here on American Indian Airwaves, we go to the heart of the Chumash Nation in the city of Santa Barbara, whereby on August 10th of 2020, the Advisory Council to the City Government of the City of Santa Barbara unanimously voted to rename Indios Morta, or Dead Indian Street, to Hutash. The struggle over the street's name change has been ongoing for over 28 years. In this first segment, we speak with Marcus Lopez of the Chumash Nation and Fidel Rodriguez of the Chumash Nation on their participation in what transpired this past August 10th and the significance behind the name change of Indios Muerto to Hutash. Well, first of all, Larry, on June 15th, we, we sent a letter to the city of Santa Barbara in accordance with the change the name of Indio Muerto which means dead Indian. Now, um, the letter we sent, I'll read it in part. He says, we the Chumash peoples and our supporters demand that the street name be changed now. It must be changed to another name that is not insulting, oppressive, and demeaning. So California peoples have suffered through genocide, discrimination, slavery, stolen land, and treaties that failed to be ratified or honored. And so I, we went into um, to state from the view of the Bavarian and Chumash Tribal Council, that this particular time is important, especially with the issue of the Black Lives Matter and the social injustices and the rallies and discrimination uh, that happens throughout the nation and slavery and all that goes with it, that this notion of an, a street name, Dead Indian, is just slaps in the face of not only injustice, but the Chumash people themselves. So we asked for the city to change the name, and then in turn they referred back to us through the um, mechanisms of the city of Santa Barbara that in, in accordance with the ordinance 3485-1971 that states that existing names and 
established should not be changed unless, after investigation and public hearings, the name is found to be inappropriate. And we illustrated that why the name to be appropriate. And so the mechanism that the city has, we went through the Neighborhood Advisory Council of the City of Santa Barbara so that panel of the council can review the you know, inappropriateness of the name of Indio Muerto or Dead Indian and see that it is inappropriate and also the mechanisms of how that for example, they went into the cost, they went into the reasons that we went into the background of it, the climate, and pa all the panel discussions went into the variety of why this issue is so inappropriate. Number one, it's why it's so racist, Larry. And so the outcome of the, of the evening, Monday, was that it was a unanimous vote, and it changed the name of Indio Muerto, or Dead Indian, to Hutash, which means translation, more or less, into Mother Earth. Fidel, what was your role um, leading up to Monday night's uh, action? I guess my role has just been kind of like an advocate for wanting the street sign changed. Having been kind of like involved in like studying Gairate since 94, when I went to USC, I started kind of like getting into symbols and history. And when I realized because of my consciousness that it changed as, a, as you know, getting into my early 20s and studying history, realizing that Dead Indian Street, Indio Muerto, was like appalling. You know, and as Marcus had said, inappropriate. And so my involvement really has just been constant progression of trying to seek justice for the Shumash and not only the Shumash, but, you know, Native people all over the continent. Because it's obviously derogatory. It's obviously inhumane. You know, it's nefarious and, and evil when you think about the symbol behind it, right? And, you know, we use a lot of different analogies to kind of like explain it to people and use this numerous times, but like I use it because people know the history of uh, the Jewish Holocaust. And, you know, we would never stand for it if it said dead Jew street. We just wouldn't. And so for me, my involvement has been, one, being able to process this with Marcus Lopez and other elders and historians. And, you know, the, the biggest thing of being involved in this for me me has been my own development of patience and knowing that everything is about timing, which, you know, Marcus had shared that with me years ago. And to me, my involvement has also been for my ancestors. It's also been for my children. It's also been for other young indigenous kids that I've spoke to in Santa Barbara that are from Guatemala, that are from different states in Mexico that are straight indigenous, but are subjected to that now. And that includes their parents that come here that are a different population that live in Santa Barbara now that, that see that. And they speak Spanish, so they see the, you know, the truth of what that actually means and how degrading that is. And so being involved in it has been, you know, the, the notion of truly decolonizing. How do we deprogram? How do we deconstruct some of these symbols that are you know, symbolic of conquest and symbolic of historical trauma. And so, again, I said in the in the talk that I did on Monday, the, the five minutes I was able to share was that it's like a constant commercial that's broadcasted into the into the minds of not just people of indigenous background, but people of European descent, people of African 
Americans and all people are subjected to this negative energy, this negative uh, subliminal message and overt message at times, right? Which continues to kind of like send this message that Native people, Indigenous people don't matter. You know, we talk Black lives don't matter. That's a symbol for Native American lives don't matter. And so, you know, my involvement, again, like I said, it's part of my own journey for myself to progressively move forward and try to bring justice to the things that we see in the United States that are symbolic of white supremacy, that are symbolic of the inequalities that we see, which is also symbolic of an indigenous way of life, which was connected to the earth, which, you know, this system that came, uh, you know, some 500 years ago represents the the destruction of, of certain connections that we have as human beings to the earth right? We pull the oil out, we pull the, the, the coal out, we pull out the diamonds, we pull all these these raw materials that are really part of us because we're part of the earth. But that's how indigenous people see the world, not just native people, but Africans see it that way. Asians see it that way that are connected to their culture. And so part of this has been just this progressive movement to bring light to it so we can change it more importantly for the future generation. So, you know, uh, the council uh, coming together and, and deciding that Earth Mother Hutash should be the name is like such to me one of the most beautiful ways that we, we can heal and we can respect the earth we can respect ourselves and everybody is part of earth everybody is part of earth mother no matter what ethnic backgrounds they are you know Larry on that note Fidel did a, a terrific presentation as far as trying to he did an article uh, for Independent last year and then I thought it was really gripping, you know, uh, and he talked about this Indian Wato, he talked about this master narrative, as we constantly say in American Indian Airways, Larry, that you bring out every time, and we bring it out, Fabiana and I bring it out all the time, and Corey in the past brought all the time, and that is this notion of, of this master narrative of belittling. And your last interview with Steve Newcomb, you know, we talked about a little bit. I just touched on this uh, doctrine of discovery, doctrine of domination, and people should go back to that. But how are you supposed to talk about this in five minutes? I went through a discussion with this neighborhood advisory council trying to educate it about the invasion of Anglo-America in 1848 and since then. We talked about, and I quoted Jack Forbes, we talked about the Indian Wars, we talked about poverty, we talked about the conditions, we talked about, you know, the this ideological attack on the belief of the common misunderstanding that Chumash, and were they even present, the academia and also the certain people, anthropologists within Santa Barbara, are trying to put the nail in Chumash coffin, and they're trying to make extinct or trying to glorify the minuteness of our culture and our peoples, and trying to put the, the, the nail in the coffin, but yet just Chumash and the variety of our recognized, um, federally recognized tribe in San Inez, as well as the Coastal Band, the Barrio Chumas Tribal Council, and the Barrio Terreno Council, and all the other groups, the independent groups, I call them, that we are testifying, and all the independent people, that this is not only inappropriate, this is right racist. And so what I try to describe, Larry, with the legal system about the the act of government and protection of Indians, that no white person or no Indian can testify against a white person during the 1800s, and the past and the present books and texts and academia and the social thinking and literature 
only validates this ideological manifestation of past evil and contempt for the not only not an Indian, but for the Chumash. And this is not taught within our schools, Larry. So this notion of Indian people living in the atmosphere of fear, depression, and alienation is really, it's about historical trauma. And then I try to describe, Larry, in the sense of the people's collective response to the name of Indian Muerto or dead Indian is, we're, we're like shocked, unbelievable, sad, degrading, insulting, not human, disrespectful, despondent, sorrowful, depressing, heartbreaking, fuming, mad, enraged, incest, and finally ganaching in your teeth or all in all, just racist, Larry, just all out white supremacists, all out disrespectful and all those type of things, all those feelings that came out. And given this, all this research and, and reading all this and looking at this and the background of all this, also I mentioned the Executive Order 915-19 uh, last year, Governor Galvin Newsom about we have to, and he stated that we have to reckon with the dark history of our state of California. And then within all this, Larry, it comes into it was wrenching, heart-wrenching it was psychologically wrenching. It was, you know, how many times you have to describe this assault every time, like Fidel just said, all this information which they, we never get our history books in Santa Barbara and in the universities and in the colleges never mention this notion of the atrocities and the genocide, the assault, and the just the rape of our peoples and our culture. Culturally, the Hutash is a beautiful name and that it not only reflects the Earth Mother, but the strength and importance of women leaders in our community and the need for all peoples to recognize the ongoing pandemic of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. Hutash Street would be a symbol of our collective survival, Larry, of our strength of our resilience that as well as a call to heal from the past, the present and future violence and trauma that are symptoms of colonialism and racism. This notion I ended with, Larry, I ended with this, this notion that what Donna Scribner, the MD that teaches the cost of the cross-cultural psychiatrist, the historical trauma focused on native indigenous people, she said, replacing this street name with one that might commemorate the apology from the dominant society would be a good next step in the healing process. She also stated it's about reaching into the notion of native people, first people of the soul wrenching, the soul of our native population. This background of historical trauma is something that is can't be eliminated, but the historical trauma and this, that we're traumatized, this is a first step in many steps and to deal with this notion of how do we talk, have a dialogue within ourselves, within the much community. It's not about one band or what, who leads this, but yet let's talk about, let's have a dialogue and all the different means and ways in which this uh, subliminal and direct racism of social injustice is manifested into the, not only the sign, but the policies in the city and County of Santa Barbara and all the cities and all the counties and all the state governments and all the federal governments have the subliminal attack 
on our native population. So this is what the symbol means. And I think Fidel gave an excellent discussion. And in, in summation, Larry, I think this is, this is, was wrenching. And a lot of people have gone, got a lot of congratulations. But I don't want people to, to look at the sound bites. This is a step in a further discussion, the history of native people throughout the United States, throughout the hemisphere, and also in a local region, the Chumash people. And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Marcus Lopez and Fidel Rodriguez of the Chumash Nation regarding the Advisory Council's unanimous motion on August 10th of 2020 to rename Indios Morta, or Dead Indian Street, to Hutash Street in the heart of the Chumash Nation in the city of Santa Barbara. And now back to the interview. Talk about this symbolic interconnectedness to all these other name places throughout Chumash territory that are indicative of colonialism and why the renaming of Indios Morta or Dead Indian Street to Hutash is so powerfully significant. I think in all, just to kind of be very logical and simplistic, it's about the narratives. I mean, I, I believe like my, my grandmother, who was, you know, indigenous and Chumash and Mexican, was a Catholic, right? And that's that's what she practiced. And so in understanding that, the, the, the point that I want to make is that the narratives of what has happened has not been acknowledged. And when our narratives are not acknowledged, it's, that's what is reflective of, of us not existing, right? So... Do I want to see the missions torn down? I don't know. I mean, I, I would I be disrespecting what my grandmother's practiced? I don't know. I don't know those things. But I do, or I would like to see the transparency is invoked into every element of school, right? Where people understand, just like we've all learned about the Jewish Holocaust, the, the issue is, is that now that like books like uh, An American Genocide or Murder State have come out, it's like these narratives need to be told on many different, and let people make those decisions, right? When I saw all those Ventura Anglo-Americans blocking the Hunaparacera statue um, some weeks ago when there was a group of people trying to, to bring attention to, to the statue, right? They were protecting it, and they were saying, we love Hunaparacera. He was a, our hero, blah, blah, blah. And I was looking at these young kids that were 14, 15, 16 years old, and I was going, do they, have they read any of the narratives, any of the things that he said, any of the things that he's done? And my intuition and my logic says, no, they probably haven't. They probably haven't had a teacher in high school break down what happened to him. And so here they are being used as pawns that their parents, and I saw it, I could see their parents were there, their grandparents were there, and they were just kind of regurgitating the same BS that we've had to deal with in terms of racism. And so again, getting back to the symbol changing, right? It's not just about the symbol, it's about the narrative. There's a, a person, her name was Didi Delgado. She was from the Black Lives Matter movement. She had tied herself to some barricades when Trump was being inaugurated some uh, years back. And they had asked her, why do you feel like you have to tie yourself to these barricades? And she said, because our history is important, because our narrative is our humanity. And at the end of the day, it's our narratives that need to be talked about, because then we're acknowledged and people can understand. Then we can have that conversation of why did this old Spanish days, which is symbolic of the colonial period uh, and the genocide of the Chumash, why, did, why should we change that? Well, you can only change that when you understand the history. 
when you understand the narratives. And what happens is that truth is whole, and any partial approach to truth can't give you anything but an incomplete answer. And that's been the issue, is that everybody is functioning their perceptions based on half the history. They don't know everything, so how can we expect people to understand our plight when they haven't been educated, just like many of our own people haven't been educated? So to me, it's about... You, I, we, young people, people that are historians, Marcus, I mean, we could have wrote a damn book on what he just said, because those are the stories that need to come out, because that is what creates change in society. It's, this is a first step, but now it's going to come like, oh, now we need a documentary on this stuff. Now we need, you know, textbooks at this stuff. Now the shift is happening. There is a shift happening in the universe. We see it. We understand it. I think part of Black Lives Matter coming out, setting the tone again, it's like Marcus has been working on this much longer than I have and it's like to see it happen now as he had told me it's all about timing and now is time for our narratives to be told transparently and with progressive force and that was Marcus Lopez and Fidel Rodriguez speaking on the advisory council to the city of Santa Barbara's unanimous decision on August 10th of 2020 to rename Indios Morta or Dead Indian Street to Hutash Street in the heart of the Chumash Nation. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're going to take a short break with a song by Pura Fey called Sacred Seed. Expands to Highland Pangeus and Scott Woman Tree of Life. Star Southern Moon Claw inside. Control ocean tides together. Further rain, fire, and hurricane. For winds and begin forever. Within each seed is a universe. Within a universe. You and me and everything that breathes is connected to the sacred sea, sacred sea, DNA, the memory of all time. Mother's twin sons recorded code creates all the cycles of life. Star, sun, and moon 
In the second segment of our program here on American Indian Airwaves, I speak with Michaela Madrid. She is of the Lower Brule Lakota Sioux Nation and works with the Sovereign Bodies Institute. I spoke with her on the recently published report, I Will See You Again in a Good Way. The report is the first of its kind that covers missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, and two-spirited people throughout Northern California. And now, Michaela Madrid speaking on I Will See You Again in a Good Way. So this report that I will see you again in a good way is the result of a partnership between the Sovereign Bodies Institute and the Yurok Tribal Court. So this is actually a multiple year project and this is just kind of our first work in progress report. So there'll certainly be others coming out. But what we're focusing on here is a report on missing and murdered indigenous women and girls and and two-spirit people of Northern California. So this is the first of its kind as far as studying the MMIWG2 issues specifically in Northern California. There's been some kind of more national, broad, brushstrokes type of report. But here with this report, we really focused in on the specific context of Northern California. So some of the highlights of this report were really that we found just quite a stark difference between the interview answers that the law enforcement uh, individuals that we interviewed and then the families and survivors that we interviewed. We asked the same questions to all of our interview participants. Um, and a lot of them, you know, were like, what are the root issues here? Um, what can happen to um, reduce some of these barriers that lead to high numbers of MMIW? And particularly on the question of kind of root causes where we saw just very stark differences between what law enforcement gave and then the families and survivors. So to me, what this really illustrates is how important it is to have all of these voices and that the person who's interviewing has also a big impact on what's going to be said because of some of the root issues that our families and survivors gave were maybe police violence, police negligence. They're not going to say that to a police officer if law enforcement is the one carrying out this report. So in order to get kind of a full idea and a full glimpse of this issue, we really need to have um, indigenous researchers. Now, in the report, one of the things that struck me is that as of July of 2020, the Sovereign Bodies Institute had documented 165 missing and murdered indigenous women and girls and two-spirited cases in California, making California state with the fifth highest number nationally compared to other states like Montana, Washington, New Mexico, and Arizona. And the report states that Northern California outranks many states, and if it were a state, would be in the top 10 with 105 cases. And expand upon that, uh, because those numbers, which are, these are people's relatives, right? Um, They're not just numbers. These are people's, you know, grandmas, their moms, their daughters, their nieces, their cousins. And so the, the numbers are not only extraordinarily high, but talk about the report and that findings specifically in Northern California a little bit more. 
Yeah, certainly. And so I think uh, what this really is evidence of is the larger issue of the invisibility of California natives. So when we think of Indian country, you know, often we think of Oklahoma, we think of South Dakota or Montana. And a lot of times folks are surprised to learn that there are still Native Americans in California. And it's kind of this um, astonishing issue that we're still having to say, like, we're still here. And so I think that the fact that there are so many people, uh, relatives missing in Northern California that are just not even documented, that we just don't know about. Um, and it just shows kind of how deep and traumatic this issue is to the folks in the local area. Because just like you said, they are relatives, um, their aunties, their daughters, their sisters. And that was just one thing that I was really so grateful for. And really our whole team was just how gracious the families and survivors were in sharing their stories with us. Like we know that that is just such a hard thing to do when you feel like you haven't been listened to, you haven't been, you know, you've been ignored. And so it's just really fills my heart and makes me really happy that these uh, individuals trust us with their stories, that they know that we are going to present it in a way that they see respectful and in a way that will hopefully bring some healing and some maybe some change as well. I know when it comes to um, talking to survivors and just trying to collect the information, if you will, and and I know, um, according to the report, Sovereign Bodies Institute, which maintains the largest and most comprehensive database of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and and two-spirited cases in the U.S. and Canada, um, had documented, was it 4,293 cases across the U.S. and Canada, of which 2,306 of those cases were in the United States. So how is that process in collecting that data different than, say, like the state? And, And I mentioned the state, meaning the state of California, for example, because I recall for uh, the state of California from 2000 to the year 2010, the California State's Attorney General's Office, which had a hotline for reporting missing um, indigenous women, had received something like a total of three phone calls over a 10-year period. And really, that's indicative of, with other folks that we've spoken to, of that inherent distrust with the state. So talk about the process uh, in producing this study and in working with indigenous peoples and and having them feel culturally comfortable enough to permit the data collection of their stories. Yeah, so first and foremost, we focus on relationships. Um, And it's just so important to have these nurturing um, and respectful relationships two-way reciprocal relationships with families and survivors. There's just no way to really understand the MMIW issue without getting into the case details because it's so, each case by case is so different. There's different particular barriers that came up and you won't know that if you're just looking at them all broadly. And so the only way to really have that full understanding is to have that long-term relationship. So at SBI, we provide a lot of, you know, emotional support services. We have weekly 
weekly kind of virtual sessions that are open. And, you know, that's where we get a lot of our kind of standing with the community. And, you know, the academic in me would call it community-based participatory research. And really just looking at, like, in order to fully understand this issue, we need the information. We need to know what happened. And the only way we can get that information is if the interview subjects and if our families and survivors, if they trust us. And so right now what we're seeing across the country is kind of this task force model where law enforcement agencies are in charge of leading these studies. And these studies are often maybe a year long. Um, And what they're really, it seems to me, is just trying to get a quick answer. And this issue has just has such deep roots. I mean, really from, you know, point of first contact was when the MMIWG2 issue started. And so we can't solve that issue in a year, you know, and we can't solve it by using the same systems that perpetuated this issue in the first place. You know, I think it's pretty, it's kind of ironic that our answer um, at the federal level to, um, you know, this issue of police inaction is, you know, improper police investigations is to launch a police investigation. Like, clearly that's not working. You know, if, like I mentioned earlier, these issues um, of MMIWG2 are tied to police inaction. They're tied to police violence. And a survivor of someone who had police violence directed towards them, a survivor of police violence, isn't going to tell a police officer, you know, that another police officer hurt them because they're not going to believe them. Um, And that is just traumatizing. It's our current processes for these task forces. They're all really traumatizing to these people who have been through just the worst trauma you can think of. And so really our aim with this project is to undo those harms, is to show that like there is a different way to do this research. There's a different way to understand the issue. Um, And we're in it for the long haul. Like I said, this is the first report of a series. This is a multiple-year project. And so, you know, we are looking forward to developing even more relationships and to have an even more robust report um, with our next work-in-progress report. And we want to remind listeners that you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Michaela Madrid of the Sovereign Bodies Institute on this newly released report. I will see you again in a good way. Recently published, it is the first report of its kind focusing on missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, and two-spirited peoples throughout Northern California. Michaela, one of the things that was disturbing in reading the report, it states that of these 2,306 cases, over half, or 58%, are homicide cases, 713 of victims are girls ages 18 and under, and the average victim age is 27 years old. And so in talking about this report, can you expand upon this further, and do we see any particular industries that are culpable or more associated with missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and two-spirited peoples? So the data definitely suggests that this is an issue that not exclusively, but substantially impacts younger girls. And so that's why um, we feel it's important to add the G in the MMIWG2, just to show that this isn't, you know, adult women 
necessarily that are going missing. It's our girls. It's our girls who who are still learning how to be in the world. And what we're seeing is that there are predators, I'll just say it bluntly, that take advantage of um, the colonial kind of historical, you know, intergenerational trauma because they know that, that our women are hurting, take advantage of that. And so, yeah, it's certainly, certainly an issue that we see a lot with young girls. We've been doing some research on missing and runaway youth that we'll be um, doing some more reports on here as we come forward, not part of this project, but just with SBI as a whole. Just to really document this issue, um, we also see the foster care system was mentioned a lot throughout our uh, interviews about being kind of a reason um, why either mothers who have their children taken away kind of then, you know, it's almost like the straw that breaks the camel's back, you know, and leads them down this path. And then also of kids who are in foster care that go missing several times. And so, so yeah, it's definitely an issue that's impacting our girls, especially with Facebook and online. There's just these men out there who are taking advantage of, of our girls. Were there any particular industries that were more prevalent in their operations in relationship to missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and two-spirited peoples? Yeah, so we didn't cover that topic so much in this report, but the Sovereign Bodies Institute, we have issued a report mm-hmm. connecting the Keystone XL pipeline yeah. um, in their man camps with the MMIWG2 issue. Um, so there appears to be a correlation between where these man camps are set up and mm-hmm. where there is a high number of um, missing and murdered Indigenous women. And, and it really makes sense. Um, so for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with what these man camps are, is they're essentially temporary housing for the workers that are building the pipelines, maintaining the pipelines as such. Because a lot of times these uh, pipelines are placed, um, they're not placed in the big cities. Um, they're placed in these really rural areas, typically near or through tribal land. Um, and so you have these hundreds of men who aren't local to the area, who live a very mobile lifestyle, you know, kind of living from man camp to man camp. So they don't have that kind of, um, you know, accountability to behave in a community because they don't have ties to those communities. And so um, these men, hundreds of them at a time, they get bored, you know, and what is there to do in rural in rural areas of the country, you know. And so, so yeah, it's a pretty interesting correlation um, between that issue and the man camp specifically. One of the things we saw in covering the man camps in the past here on American Indian Airwaves is that these individuals that work in the non-renewable resource extractive industries and stay or live at these man camps, they go out as super predators, they go out and prey on indigenous peoples. And oftentimes they do that because they feel that they can go out and commit these human rights abuses with impunity. They understand that that their actions will not get reported. If they do get reported, that there probably won't be an investigation. And if the case does get reported and there's an investigation, that the penalty they receive will be minuscule compared to to other cases 
where the victim is white. And I was just curious, did you see any or hear of any stories that kind of corroborate that are consistent with that narrative and the man camps and super predators? Yeah, so I can't say that we found that particular finding in this yeah. research. That's not to say that we won't maybe look into that question a little more. Yeah. Um, really, what this kind of year one research was, was really developing that template for our study. Um, so we spent quite a bit of time working on our interview questions, uh-huh. kind of the flow of how the interviews would go, um, and also getting approval from families and uh, survivors. Um, that this was kind of the way that we should be going about this study. So it's really, I think we'll have some really great things coming forward. But like I said this year, because part of that community-based participatory research is, you know, empowering the folks that you're going to be interviewing and getting the study from to have a hand in designing the study instrument. And so that was really the big focus of this report and so, yeah, I imagine we can um, identify more of those nuanced type yeah. of patterns going forward. We were talking about the oil industry, right, in relationship to the man camps. And I guess I'd be curious to see how um, perhaps the oil industry or just the transportation industry, which I know is complicit in the human trafficking of indigenous women and girls and two-spirited peoples, based on uh, previous interviews that we've conducted. But I'd be curious to see how that those industries relate here in, in California, where California may not necessarily have a large oil industry on the land, except for maybe the oil refineries. But California, in which the state and coastal cities benefit, does have a large offshore oil industry, right, which directly Mm -hmm. connects in that is directly part of the non-renewable resource extractive industry. So it'd be interesting to see if there's any kind of uh, correlation in the extension of how the oil industry operates, say, like in the the Plain States or the Midwest uh, or in, in the Southwest, and whether or not that connects to the industry's operations out here in California. And um, one of the things you mentioned about uh, the issue of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls and two-spirited people being more of a common topic now. And uh, I bring that up because this past week in Billings, Montana, the Trump administration kicked off its Operation Lady Justice program. And Operation Lady Justice is the result of President Trump's executive order that was signed on November 26th of 2020. And I was wondering if you maybe could talk a little bit about Operation Lady Justice, if you will, and how that does or does not connect with the work that Sovereign Bodies Institute is doing. Yeah. So, you know, any any kind of attention that's brought to this issue is good. You know, and it's and I want to preface it by saying that, you know, it's it's obviously an important issue to cover and um but it's also an even more important issue to cover in the right way and to do so in a way that strengthens tribal sovereignty, um, that recognizes community expertise in this issue. Um, and because this issue has been ignored for so long. There are vast networks of grassroots community organizers who have really been pushing this work forward. And from the outside, 
it really doesn't appear that this Operation Lady Justice is doing much to build off of that work to kind of bring those folks into the fold to be part of the task force and instead is trying to come up with its own way of dealing with this issue. And I think that's kind of my biggest issue with Operation Lady Justice is that it, you know, they're doing all these like tribal consultations and whatnot, but, you know, consulting is great, but being a part of the task force is even better. And so it really, this feels um, like just another kind of, um, you know, parental kind of that typical, like any time it comes to Indian country, like the federal government likes to think that, you know, they have all the answers and they can, you know, solve this issue. But like I said earlier, that just hasn't worked. That's how we've gotten to this issue that we're at. So what I would like to see with this task force is really for that deep empowerment of the survivors and of the families and of the grassroots organizers. And it just feels really um, coincidental that all of these cold case offices started coming open so close to an election and also without much, you know, like there were no one even got a call like a month or a week before to let us know that this not us, but just to engage kind of the local communities to really be part of this. And that that photo that I saw of Ivanka Trump with the, um, you know, the bustles and the headdresses on the floor, like that would just really rub me the wrong way because that that's not how we display those really honorable regalia. Right. And if there were neighbors people part of this task force they would have said that and that wouldn't have happened and so and then also you know this doesn't happen in a bubble everything's connected so it seems like the MMIWG2 issue is kind of an easy issue for this administration to um, say they're working on but then yet look at the other things they're doing they're taking away tribal lands from tribes they're you know calling uh, folks Pocahontas on a national scale. They're, you know, renewing some of these permits for these pipelines that we fought so hard against. So it's just, it's, you know, I don't, I don't want to assume a bad motive, but when you look at kind of the whole picture, it just doesn't, it doesn't feel very genuine and intentional. And I hope that the, all this criticism that Operation Lady Justice is getting will lead them to be more inclusive, um, to not just take that kind of federal law enforcement, um, we are going to fix this for you kind of perspective, um, because that's just not, that's not going to solve this issue. Right. And what my biggest fear is if this Operation Lady Justice issue is just a political stunt, um, that is just so re-traumatizing and re-triggering for all of these survivors because right. this issue is going to be here um, whether or not Lady Justice sticks around, you know. And so so there really needs to be that long-term commitment to ending this issue. And it's, it appears that that's not necessarily what this task force is aiming to do. And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Michaela Madrid of the Sovereign Bodies Institute. She's speaking on the newly released report, I Will See You Again in a Good Way, the first report of its kind to cover missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, and two-spirited people throughout Northern California. And now back to the interview. 
And what's interesting is that the U.S. Secretary of Interior, David Bernhardt, is a former extractive industry lobbyist, and he's been appointed to co-chair the Operation Lady Justice Task Force. I was reading an article by Lynette Grable, published in the Counterpunch magazine. The article is called The Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women Human Rights Emergency is Not a Photo Op for Ivanka Trump. And in the article, she's talking about some of the work that she's done with Not Our Native Daughters and other indigenous organizations like the Global Indigenous Council. And, and they actually put forth a policy initiative to former House Representative John Lewis at which he submitted on the floor of Congress. And the act was called the Reduce, Return, and Recover Act. And the act was the most comprehensive piece of missing and murdered indigenous legislation that would go far beyond the Savannah Act. And I was wondering if you could talk about that in relationship to the work that Sovereign Bodies Institute is doing. Yeah, I read that article too, and I really applaud um, that author. It was great. I think one thing that really stood out to me in that article when she, you know, was addressing the fact that it was too expensive, she's like, "Well, like, what, what money amount are our women and children worth?" You know, mm-hmm. and so that's what's really disturbing to me is that oftentimes there's these great initiatives that are brought forth by tribal leaders, by grassroots community organizers, but the the answer is always like we don't have enough money for that. And and that's just so disheartening to hear that there's not enough money for your missing relative, you know. Um and, and it really doesn't seem like that should be an issue. And I and I get it kind of the state of the world we're in with the global pandemic, um, resources are tight. But these are missing people, you know, like how many resources are we willing to expend for our non-native women and children that are missing? You know, it seems like a lot more um, than what we're willing to do for our native women that are missing. And so it's so unfortunate um, and really a slap in the face to a lot of the native um, policy writers who have proposed these really great amendments that affirm tribal sovereignty, that uplift indigenous researchers, um, just to have them dismissed right away because of the cost. You know, if we can, if we can find all of this money for, you know, a wall, like, why can't we find this money to find our missing relatives? Well, and then, too, is uh, what about the treaty obligations and the U.S. government's trust responsibility to indigenous peoples and their respective First Nations, right? And, and since when does cost become a factor in deciding whether or not to uphold or whether or not cost should even be a factor in in deciding to either uphold or abrogate its trust responsibility with federally recognized nations? And, and it's the same kind of argument that uh, Republicans made when it came to this last round of reauthorizing the Violence Against Women's Act. They didn't want to uh, reauthorize the act because they made the same argument, but they also made the same argument what was it, seven years prior, they didn't want to authorize the Violence Against Women Act because it cost too much. And and so this has been a repeated argument 
when it comes to any kind of legislation that would either directly or indirectly apply to this issue of missing and murdered indigenous women's girls and two-spirited peoples, which would be, you know, which is a human rights issue, right? We haven't said it is that way, but it really is a, a you know, a, a human rights issue. And, it, and it's not talked about in that kind of way, because as we were talking before, right, these are people's relatives, and it has intergenerational implications, whether it be ancestors that are murdered, missing, right, indigenous women, girls, or two-spirited peoples, or relatives that we know of in the present, that they have these intergenerational implications that result in a diminishment or an extinguishment, if you will, of aspects of indigenous peoples, cultures, and nations. Yeah, I heard it said um, really well, you know, budgets are moral documents. You know, they they really outline kind of where our priorities are and where we're willing to spend. And it doesn't appear that this issue is a priority um, to this government because that's always the response. Like you said, it's we don't have enough money. And it's, that's I just, I don't buy it. I don't. Now, the report focuses on three areas, right? It addresses the lack of data on missing and murdered women, uh, girls, and uh, two-spirited people, particularly in Northern California. It does uh, establishes a protocol for training other tribal communities on consistent data gathering, community interventions. And it has, and the report focuses on the best practices in law enforcement. And there is a section of Public Law 280, which I know could be a whole nother conversation, but we want people to to access and the report, to read the report. And I was wondering if there's um, any final thoughts about the report, what you want listeners to come away with, and what people's responsibilities are. Yeah, so I think um, my biggest thing that I'd like to leave listeners with is that this is a work-in-progress report. This is an ongoing research that we are committed to doing with the Yurok Tribal Court. And so if there are any survivors or families out there who would like their stories told um, or who maybe don't want their stories told publicly but would like to maybe get it on the record so that it can be part of our data, please reach out to us. We would like to capture the stories of as many survivors and families as possible. And so if you if you read this and are wondering why your relative wasn't included, like please reach out to us and know that that's an open invitation to participate in this study. And then talk about how this data is helping the people out. And then for our listeners, uh, what would you like listeners to do? What's their responsibility, both Native and non-Native listeners? First, read the report. (laughs) Uh, And then I think kind of after you read the report is to think about how, for our Native listeners, um, to think about how you could potentially implement a similar research in your area. You know, the federal Indian law generally is such a case-by-case issue. Um, It matters if you're a public law 280 state. It matters if you're a treaty tribe. You know, there's just so many nuances that it's really impossible to capture all of that when you're looking at kind of national inquiries. So, So really what we believe is that this report can be 
be used as a template for other locations um, to do these really focused re research on their um, geographical locations with the hope that you know eventually in probably quite a few years we can have you know every area is going to have this sort of in-depth um, research and so then I would say to the non-native listeners read this report <laughs> and then talk to your state elected officials because this this task force model there's a handful of states that have already passed um, these task forces and have gone through with them but there's even more that are looking at doing research and I think what we see through this research is that it is really impossible to get the full story if it's not an indigenous-led research process, if it's not coming from a place of tribal sovereignty and grassroots movement. So I would encourage you to talk to your elected officials to make sure that if they are looking at task force language um, and bills, that they include language in there that uh, requires this research to be done in partnership with tribes and with indigenous researchers. Because what we're seeing right now with these task forces is that they're made up of you know, 20 plus law enforcement agencies. And they might invite one or two Native people um, just to kind of say that they had their Native you know, consultation on there. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're listening to those two Natives that are on the task force. And so it really needs to be an Indigenous-led research in which law enforcement is invited to come and is invited to give information, but they're not the ones that are controlling the table. You know, this is a huge puzzle and we need every single piece. But what we've learned in order to um, know the most pieces is that uh, folks need to feel comfortable sharing with you. And um, indigenous people have just been burned by law enforcement too many times. We have the highest rate of police brutality um, out of any race. And so there's just that inherent mistrust that just can't be overcome in a year. And so if you're not only going to have a year for these task forces, it's just so crucial to come from a community-based participatory research framework. The moment of silence is over. And that was Michaela Madrid of the Sovereign Bodies Institute speaking on the newly released report, I Will See You Again in a Good Way, the first report of its kind that covers missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, and two-spirited people covering Northern California. For more information on the Sovereign Bodies Institute, you can visit their website at sovereign-bodies.org. And that concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. A special thank you to our guests for the hour, Fidel Rodriguez, Marcus Lopez, and Michaela Madrid. A special thank you to our musical guest, Aragon Star, Koopa Aina, Perafe, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studio of Burnt Swamp Studio in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, Fabiana Hirsch, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. And the blood never comes clean from the guilty minds, nor the hands that hold the chains.
Silence is over.